I want to formally welcome everybody on behalf of Vintage Jewish Academy to our brand new course called Decoding Talmud. This has been a long time in the making, always looking to, uh, to get Talmud courses going. And we have with us a true Talmud scholar, Rabbi Jacobson, Rabbi Mendel Jacobson, who is going to be leading all of you in this experience into the, the wonderful sea of Talmud. That's an expression that's used, Yam Shal Talmud, the sea of Talmud. And you are in very capable hands. And so with that, I hand over the proverbial mic to Rabbi Jacobson. Um, take it away. Right. Good evening. Thank you, Rabbi Solish. Um, so just a little introduction about myself. Uh, my name is Rabbi Mendel Jacobson. I actually just moved to Atlanta in the beginning of August with my family of four children. And thank God we love it here. Um, very welcoming. We like the weather. <laughs> we like the people. And we like the fact that we could find a parking no matter what time of the day it is. Um, so I have been teaching, learning Talmud for many years, thank God. And I've uh, been focused on teaching Talmud the last four or five years in, um, in, different, in different settings. And it's really been an honor to, and a pleasure to be able to to teach Talmud even more than learn it. Because when you teach it and you need to give it over, it, it helps you find different aspects that perhaps you didn't see when you yourself were learning it and being taught it. So one of the things that I found amazing is to start decoding the Talmud and not just listening and reading it and hearing it from others, but rather to start breaking it down and figuring out the the processes, the norms, the expectate, like what to expect, what, what the logic behind it is somewhat, at least it's a, it's a journey. And every time I think I got to level one, I realized that I got to go all the way back. So, so it's a, it's, it's a journey, which um, I'm, I'm glad to be able and honored to be able to share with you. And I hope you'll join me in this exciting journey that, um, although I'm many years into is just the beginning for me as well. And it's always the beginning. So there's always, it's, there's always a step further. There's, oh, oh, uh, there's always another realization and I'm gonna finish with that. I'll stop with that and I will get to the class. So I was speaking, I was thinking for today, we will start with the class being one hour. And although the Talmud is huge and there's a lot to discuss, We'll try staying on topic as much as possible. I'm sure it will be tempting to lead to a lot of, lot of other discussions because there's so many things that we just touch on to be able to get to the bigger picture, but we'll try, we'll, we'll stay focused. And for those that want to take the conversations further, we'll try making that happen. So for today, we'll do the class for an hour, but then as the class, as the set, as the series continues, we'll see if we'll need to add in a few more minutes at the end of classes to, or to do a little review or to be able to add in the, the halachic aspect of it or any other needs that we might have. So, so with that, I will start mine. I'll be sharing my screen here and I will be starting with just a little, oh, I think I just deleted what I needed. Oh, I did. Okay. I'll be starting with a short presentation um, 
just a quick not to get um, this class itself, this little introduction that I'm about to give you. I uh, spoke to Rabbi Solish. He said he gave it over in a six-week series. So the, the point of this isn't to carry, to, uh, to focus that much on this is just to give us a quick background to help us because I will reference back to it at times when discussing certain differences that we might see in the Mishnah or the Talmud or how the Talmud works, I might just reference back to this idea. So I wanted to just go through a few quick um, pieces of information regarding the difference between Mishnah and Talmud. Um, one thing, obviously, if you have a question, please feel comfortable to ask. Um, I am open, always open to hear questions and um, try answering them to the best of my ability. All right, so the Talmud, the what, the how, the why, and in all truth, the where as well. Um, is this gonna work? All right, so just to give a quick, a quick overview of just the Torah, the Mishnah, and the Talmud. So the, 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 the Torah covers the era, if we're only looking at the five books of Moses, it covers the era of 1393 to 12, from the creation, sorry, from day one. Actually, I don't even know why I did that. All right. But from day one until, uh, until most, yeah, that was a mistake. That was until the day that Moses passed, until the day that Moses passed away, which was in 1273 BCE. So that is the Torah, the, the era the Torah covers. So from day number one, from year number one to 127 to 1273 BCE, the author was Moses transcribing the word of God. Um, the basic design of it, and again, this class itself, this, this sheet right here could go on for, for years, and there's multiple books written about it, but we'll, I'm trying to keep it as short as possible. Point number one that's important, and I'm, I'm, I was trying to put focus primarily on the information that we need for the skills of Talmud, not to focus on the actual class, on the, on the history of this. Um, so the author is that the idea that, Mo, that Moses wrote what God said is, is a very necessary fact for understanding Talmud. The design is each letter is exact, and therefore in Talmud, you will have multiple places that one letter might end up being a full discussion. What could be learned from that? And if you, you, if you learn things from one letter, um, it's very general. On one end, it's very exact, but even when it speaks about the mitzvot, when it speaks about different commandments, when it speaks about very, it speaks about rules, they, they, leaves, it, it leaves a lot of place that needs to be added, a lot of information that needs to, uh, that needs to be included later. Um, number three, it's meant to be written, meaning to say that is the Jewish book that was Designed to be written, it was the Torah Shebech Sav, the Torah that was written, and that was meant to be the only book that was supposed to, that was originally um, set to be written. Just to add in, it's right, the five books, if you want to add in, there's the five books of Moses, if you want to add in the Tanakh, so then it's really 24 books, and as I wrote uh, in the era covered, then it will go all the way, the Tanakh, including the story of Esther, goes all the way till uh, to around 35 till the, the year 35 355 BCE. So that's the era covered in Tanakh. Again, it's a pretty loose history class, but this is just all right. The Mishnah. Um, Mishnah means the teachings. 
that started shortly before a, a short period before the destruction. Well, the Mishnah was written in the year 219 BC, um, CE, which it was compiled by Rabbi Huda Hanasi. Um, uh, I'm using the word carefully compiled. And he compiled the teachings of the Tanayim, which means the teachers. And the era of the Tanayim start in uh, a little bit before the destruction of the second temple. Um, so that's 32 BCE and the continued on through the life of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, which was 219 BCE. Again, the general breakdown of that is, is that there's eight generations of the Tanayim. Some of the famous ones were Hillel, Shammai. Um, and it was their job. They're, they're, they're the primary, they're, they're the prime, well, the Tanayim are, were teachers. They were teaching the halachic aspects of Jewish life. And Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, at a later point, he gathered that information so we could have it in one place and we shouldn't lose the oral Torah, the Torah that was been given from generation to generation, from teacher to student. Um, the design of the Mishnah is precise but loose. What I mean to say with that, it is very precise. Every word is thought out, every word is planned, but at the same time, it, it's very loose because, uh, every, again, every word is 100% important. However, there's a lot of place and there's a lot of missing information intentionally from the actual Mishnah. It's not meant to be the, own, the, the end point. It was written in a way, Rabbi Huda Nasi compiled it primarily as, it's, as, I, as I pointed out in point two, as a way to be remembered, because Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was concerned as the Jews were starting to have a more, well, not starting, were having a more, realized that the, 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 the troubles of the Jews was creating a situation where teaching from teacher to student was not going to be the best way of, of Jewish, of law, being continued because there were many times that laws couldn't even be figured out because as the Sanhedrin was finally, as the Jewish court systems were finally being re- and, 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 and as the Jews were getting comfortable enough in different eras of, of, their, of, um, of those years were finally getting comfortable enough to be able to go through all those laws and to document it in, in an organized way and to be able to continue that tradition of teaching Torah from teacher to student um, was becoming very difficult because the lack of stability that the Jewish people were having as a nation. So he realized that although it wasn't the plan, um, it, the right thing to be able to continue the Torah is to be able to write it down. So it's meant to be to include as much as possible, but at the same time, it's supposed to lead us to greater discussion to be able to figure out what he was, what was included in that because they just wouldn't be able to carry the Talmud with them every time they had to travel from location to location. Um, um, because the Mishnah is primarily focused on the halachic aspects of Judaism. Um, and there are some cases like in just, coming to my mind when it comes to the tractate about Sukkot, 
and um, and detracted about Passover. So then I'll also have some things included regarding how things were in the temple. Um, but primarily your average Mishnah covers Jewish law. And just to put it there, there's six books. Well, there's six, there's much more books. There's the six, uh, the six, uh, the six orders and each one of those, Rabbi Huda Hanasi, um, Hanasi means the, the prince. The Rabbi Huda Hanasi, the Rabbi Huda, the prince, he organized it in six orders to be able to categorize each one, which again, will quickly give you a input of which once you know what tractate it is and what order is in, you know which topic it is discussing. I'm just gonna go back to point two. And this again, this all has to do, I'm focusing on the information that is helpful for Gemara learning. When, when, it, when writing, when he, writ, he wrote the mission in a way that it should be remembered, and therefore he used, he sometimes did some things that perhaps today we wouldn't write it in such a way. So there's times where the Talmud goes back and asks, why did he use this order of the Mishnah? And he, we respond because his goal was for it to be, because he, want, he was linking pieces of information. So like this, the memory just goes from topic and in the same topic will go on. Or sometimes when he says a law, he might change the order from one Mishnah to the next Mishnah. And again, and again the Talmud will, go, will ask why. And the reason will be is because once we're, it, it, he's, he was using his understanding of how people would remember it best. Somebody have a question? Right. So that is just a, a bit. And again, the fact that it was written in so short gives us so much place and the necessity to be able to go through so much of it. All right, the Talmud era, the era of the Gemara is a three century era of around 200 to 500, yeah, 200 to 500 CE. It was comp again compiled by Rev Ashi and Ravina. Rev Ashi usually references to the rabbis of Bavel. And, 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 and this era of the Amorayim. The Amorayim is all the rabbis that are included after the era of the Tanayim, the era of the Mishnah. They're called Amorayim. That meaning Amorayim means those that say. Um, Rav Ashi was, Rav Ashi and Ravina were the final, were the, from the final rabbis of the era of the Amorayim. And they compiled the different discussions that occurred throughout those 300 years regarding the Mishnah. And interestingly, the when, and again, this is all for the sake of understanding the Gemara, it wasn't in a very organized way. Meaning to say the discussions could have been two conversations happening in two different parts in two different yeshivas of Bavel. And eventually Rabbina Rav Ashi gathered those two and tried making, well, that tried, they successfully made it into a, fascinating book but and there are some discussions that were in a yeshiva some discussions were just two rabbis meeting in the street and getting gun into a great conversation like we have when we meet our friends so they would get into conversations about something that we're studying and therefore um you, you there's in the Talmud what do you have they asked him he asked them he asked him he was wondering about that. Um, 
So that is all right. So um, that is that. And when it comes to the Talmud, Talmud, there is no topic untouched, unlike Mishnah, which is much primarily halachic. Um, when it comes to the Talmud, when it comes to the Talmud, it goes through everything. It goes through who the author is. It goes through the history of it. It could have what's called agadita which is just sayings of the Talmud, which seem to be stories, history, um, and all that could be included in that. Um, obviously, one piece, just important, although no topic is untouched, every topic is important. So the Talmud might get into a discussion, who is the author of this Mishnah, which we might not be 100% sure even later on why that was so important, but it was important because they were seeking the truth. They were trying to figure out where this was coming from. It wasn't about the end of the conversation. It wasn't about this is the conclusion. It was about the wonder, the thinking, the debating, the analyzing, the discussing what was going on. So there are most Gemaras, 90% of the Talmud does finish off with a conclusion. But there are places where it's sort of left to hang. Left, the, the, the concepts and the ideas are sort of left as they are. Um, and that could be a because the discussion was never finalized, or Rabina Rav Ashi never got that piece of information because again, you know, it wasn't like today where any where the rab where, where the the rabbis had their Instagram pages um, or Twitters and start twittering out. We just came to a conclusion that no one did before. Um, information had to go from rabbi to rabbi, and then Rabina Rav Ashi tried gathering all those notes and tr and, and compiled the Talmud with it. So that is, that is just a general information. And this, I, I might I wanted to bring up these things because these ideas of the Mishnah being exact, precise, but leaving place to analyze and to interpret is important. The Mishnah mainly deals with halacha. Gemara could go, to, could go off topic, could go from one topic to the next topic, because again, it was like, it was just, it was just discussion. It was, it was debate. It was, it was people seeking the truth. And just trying to figure out what, what and why on any, given, on any given topic. All right. That is more of a general, um, a general. A general, um, a general intro for the Talmud in general. Now I'm going to go through a just a short intro, and this again, this is really every time you learn the Talmud, there is there is when you open up any tractate, there is sort of a unspoken expectation that there are certain pieces of information that you know before you open that Talmud. Um, the way I try, um, the way I figure out what it is, is not because I'm such a great Torah scholar, um, is because I, I read the Talmud and then I go back and say, well, these were the pieces of information that I want to, that I want to say. I'm just going to point out one thing. I'm going to open up the Talmud. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a book. It's not a rule that's written anywhere, I think. But if you look at a Talmud, uh, not very clear, but the first page. This is the first page of the Talmud. It always starts with Daf Beis. 
that face. You know, let me actually let me let me open up a. I'll I'll just share a page that I have. Oh, give me a second. I realized that wouldn't be. Um, let me just. It comes to. Um, let me open up another page. Um, I'm just going to show this. When you open up a Talmud, the first page will always be Daf Beis. Um, and they say the reason is because Beis is equals number two. And I'm just going to I'm going to pick up this. I use this website a lot. Merkava, great website. Um, let's say even the track date that we're going to be learning. So this will be the first page. If you look here at, uh, uh, I can't highlight it, but where my uh, where my mouse says you have a base, that is the first page. And they say the reason is because Talmud is always base, is always second. So there's a lot of nice, cute things to say about that. Some say because the first thing is always Abbas Yisrael, is always loving a fellow fellow as yourself. But one of, the, one, one of the more basic and one related to the Talmud is that whenever you're opening up a page in Talmud, there is an unspoken expectation that you know something about it. Um, so just before, um, so well, just pieces of information that are needed for this, for this section that we're going to be studying is two, two general pieces of information that like sort of, is, is expected that you see from all the commentaries and from the Mishnah itself that it is known. And again, this chart itself is pages and pages of the Talmud, um, but we're just gonna try keeping it, so keeping it clear like this, we could keeping it just for what it is, although sometimes that's difficult because there's a lot of good discussions about this. That's why there's pages of Talmud. So just in general, the Torah labels four different types of watchmen. Um, in Hebrew, they're called the Shomer. And the idea is that you are responsible for somebody else's objects. And the, tom, the, 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 the verses sort of split it up into four different situations. I made it three because two of them, although they're very different in, in form of getting the responsibility, the, the actual responsibility you have towards the object ends up being the same. So I broke it down into three. So the four, the four types of, before we, before we go to the details, the four types are, the four types of watchmen that there is, is a shomer chinam, a free watchman or a unpaid watchman, a watchman that is watching something simply because I was asked to. So my friend comes to me and asks me, could you please do house watching or dog watching or watch my car for me or my laptop, anything along those lines. I know with my children, there's always unpaid watch watchmen going on. Could you please watch my toys? And you do it just because. So that's a shomer chinam. So a shomer chinam, a unpaid watchman, is a person that is taking, having the least pleasure from this interaction. The whole pleasure is to the person depositing it. Um, then the second type of shomer is a shomer sachar a paid watchman, where you get paid to watch somebody's object for him. So in a house, in the situation of a house sitter, but you're actually paying them to, to watch your house. Um, just while we're at it, I, that you're getting paid to watch, not that you could use it. That already has its own category. If I give it to you to watch, but I let you use it, that's might be, that is its own 
that's again a big discussion, but but a shomer sach, but it has and it has a totally different set of rules because you're also allowed to use it. So a shomer sacher is a paid watchman, which automatically now there's there's two people having pleasure. You're having the depositor is having pleasure because it's being watched for him, but I am I am having pleasure because I got paid to watch. Um, then together with that in the category or well, different categories, but same set of rules is you have a seicher, one that rents a object. So one that rents an object, it's also a shared, it's a mutual, it's a mutual benefit. I'm benefiting that I could use your object that I don't have without renting it. And you're benefiting, benefiting that I'm paying for it. So I am leasing an apartment or you're benefiting that I'm paying you and I'm benefit, benefiting that I have this house. Um, right, so that's a socher, but again, in, in I put it in the same category. So Shomer Sachar, a paid watchman and a socher and a renter, I put in the same category because they because they're both a mutual and joined um, um, they have a mutual benefit and therefore they have a mutual responsibility. Then you have the opposite of a Shomer Chinam. A paid unpaid watchman is a shoa is a shayel one that borrows something. So one, one that borrows something, the pleasure is 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 all to the one that borrows it. The person that's lending it, it doesn't have any pleasure for besides if they enjoy having stress and and they're wondering if they're gonna get back their object the way they gave it. So that is a shoel, a renter. So Although we're not perhaps in the first page, we're not going to see that much of it, but it is sort of the underlining information that there's an expect expectation to know. Just to go through this very quickly, a shomer chinam, which has a shomer chinam, unpaid watchman, which the pleasures all to the depositor, he will only need to pay in a case if he was negligent. So just a quick example is if I borrow a car, if I, um, if I borrow a car from you, and I leave it running on the street. Um, that's that's negligent. So although I'm not being paid to watch your object, but once I agree to watch your object, there's some sense of responsibility that I took upon myself. So in a case of negligence, you would have to pay anything but that. If it was stolen or lost, he swears, and we'll get to that shortly. We'll get to that. He needs to swear that he wasn't negligent and he won't need to pay. The same thing is if it was onus, if it was robbed from him, if it was forced from him, he would swear that he wasn't negligent. He would swear that that's really the situation and he does not need to pay. And the same thing is if, well, this, this rule doesn't apply, but if it died while working, meaning if it had a de natural death, um, you know, so if you gave me your car to, to watch, I left it in my garage, took care of it, locked my garage, and you came back and your car is dead. So then I have no responsibility at all. So that is a shomer chinam. Again, the only thing you would have to pay for if he was negligent. A shomer sachar, a, one, a, a, a paid watchman or a socher, one that rents, he would need to pay if he was negligent or he would need to pay if the object was stolen or lost. Um, <clears throat> lost in this situation, just again, there's pages of the Talmud discussing it, but lost primarily means that stolen means that he, he took care of it, but not enough for the norm. And he didn't hide it in a way 
that was knowing that people that would steal would interact like that. So just a quick example, the Talmud goes through a whole discussion. If you're hiding money in your wall, certain places, the, in certain cities, the, they used to go around and knock on the wall. And they were able to see if there was money hidden there. So as long as you did it in the place which they expected for there to be money there, if you're a paid watchman or you were a renter, that would not be good enough. Right. So I was I was speaking to uh, to uh, to somebody, and um, and this might be a very practical example. Is if you're living in an area, and this is I'm coming from Brooklyn, so don't mind this example, where uh, it's a common thing that your that your car gets checked to make sure that you didn't leave any valuables there. Um, and um, and if you did, they make sure to teach you the lesson that that it's not, and that, that you shouldn't leave your valuables in your car. So interestingly, in a case of a renter, if you're living in such an area, it might be better for you to leave your window, your door unlocked than locking your window, than locking your car. And I'm not putting this as a lachik, I'm just giving this food for the thought. If you're living in an area where people will break a window to check if you have anything valuable in your car, it might be better watching if you leave your door unlocked and you just make sure they have nothing, that there's nothing of value in there. Um, so that's just, just a thought that, so this is where stolen and lost is, is, is again, it's its own study, but a, a paid watchman, a shomer sachar or a renter would need to pay, would need to pay however if it was forced for him. Um, and this would just be the, the basic example the Talmud gives for an onus for being forced from him is well the, the example that the Talmud gives is a if you're watching sheep and lions came, so that's not just called lost. That's called uh, onus. It was forced from you. So in such a situation, we tell you, look, we're not expecting you to endanger your life or your situation to protect that person's thing, and therefore you would have to swear that that's what happened, and you would not need to pay. A renter, obviously if you're using it right in the right way and you're renting it, so I rent a car from you and it breaks down midway, it's not my responsibility to get it back for you as long as I was using it in its natural, in, in, in its, in its uh, planned way, in its natural way. The Talmud gives an example. If I rent a cow from you, an ox from you, and I tell you I'm traveling 10 miles and you used it 11, so the first 10, if it dies, I don't have to pay you. If I'm the renter, if I took it 11th mile, then I would have to pay. The same thing is the Gemara takes into discussion the different altitudes. So if I told you I'm going to the valley and instead I took the animal up a hill, similarly, that would go, that would change from negligent to using in its natural state. So that is regarding the Shomer Sacher and the Shoel, a borrower will need to pay. If he was negligent, for sure, he's got to pay. If it was lost or stolen, he's got to pay. If it was forced from him, onus, he's got to pay. The one thing he doesn't have to pay is if I borrowed a car from you and I told you, you know, I'm going to the gat, to going to uh, pick up something um, three miles away and a mile and a half in, it died. And I was, com I, I communicated with you what I'm borrowing the car for. So then I turned to you and say, I told you, I told you so. <laughs> so uh, I wouldn't have to pay. And again, that would only fit if 
if it's if it's you're using it in its prohibited and planned way. So that is just general information that you would that you should be aware about before going into this this thing. Here's one more piece of information that I would like to share. Um, I would even minimize this, which is just a general rule that exists in the Talmud. So over here, um, just I have this verse over here. Um, I don't. I only have it in Hebrew, but um, and this is really going to be the big discussion of our Mishnah. If it's, it's 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 speaking about a stolen object. It comes from from Shmot, from Exodus 22:3. If a object will be found in his hand, um, whether it's an ox, whether it's a cow, ox, whether it's a whether it's a donkey, if it's living, you got to pay double. In the term, in the Talmud term, in the term, term of Alakha, it's called kofel. You got to pay double. So kofel is, is a word we'll be using a lot throughout this, at least the beginning part of this journey. Okay. So that is, so the general information is the four watchmen and the, and the idea that you pay double, that you pay double. I just want to do one just quick, a little, I want to get, I want to get to the actual Mishnah, but while I just want to jump into one little over here, just the way a, the, the page of Talmud works. So in the, the inst, oh, um, on the beginning of the page in the middle, well, in the left corner, you have Lamed Dalet. That will tell you the page that it's on. It's called the Daf. And just, I might, I might suggest that if you guys want to, to write down some of these general pieces of information, um, and I'll share which ones are very key important for every time you open up a, a, new, a new Gemara. So we have something called a Daf, the page. So if you're using Merkava, you got the little where my, where the mouse is now. You got it all. You, you got it planned for you. You have the thirty four A, which means daf. Um, we'll get to the A part in a moment. Um, but if you don't have a a gemar uh, or you're not using a gemar that has the English, so daf. Um, it's usually spelled d d a f, or in Hebrew it's daf dalid final fay. So that will always be on the outside page, on the outside of the page. So it's not on the right or the left. It's always on the outside of the page. So the book goes like, I mean, it's a book. So on the outer page, you'll always have, you'll always have which page it's on. Now, so that is the page that's called DAF. Together with that, the next, the next very reference to whenever using Talmud is the Amud, the side. Because it goes Lamadalid Amr Aleph, page Lamadalid, Amur side A. So over here, you have Daf Lamadalid with no dot. Or if you have one dot, that would mean that it's page 34, side one. Um, side one. Um, and I'll throughout over the next four, few classes, I'll, I'll constantly bring. Just one or two examples of this, just so we see it more often, just a reminder. So again, daf is the page. So you have that on the outside of the page on top. And then you have or one dot or no dot will mean side Amur Aleph. Or if it has two dots, it's Amur Bey's second side. Um, again, if you use the Merkava, you got it 
on the inside of the page right here. Just while we're here, um, the name of the tractate is always, that will always be, every page of Gemara will have these, this, this header. It's really three separate headers. You have the name of the tractate is right here, Baba Metziah. And that's whether you're on the inside page or the outside page, you're always going to have it towards in this order. This order is always going to be the order. So Bava Metzia, the outer, the, on the left-hand side of facing you will always be the name of the tractate. And again, and that's how, how you'll know what tractate it is. Um, in the middle, you have the number of the chapter. And this is actually not referenced to very often throughout Talmud, but it's there. So it's worth knowing what it is. The commentaries sometimes will tell you as it's brought in the tractate, the third chapter. Usually they're, usually they're a little kinder than that and they actually tell you the page number, especially in the newer prints that were, be, were, were re, revised and added. So here you have on the left, you have the name of the tractate. In the middle, you have the name, the number of the chapter. And on the right-hand side, you have the name of the Perek. So we will be studying Perek Hamafkid, which means one, the one that deposits. And that will always be on the right-hand side of the top of any, any given page in Talmud. And again, next week, I'll just, again, just in the beginning of class, I'll give a few more examples just to see it see it there. Um, while we're at it, the inside of the page, meaning, well, right here in the middle, that's the actual Talmud. He's obviously much larger than this. Um, that is the Talmud. On the right-hand side, well, not the right-hand side, on the inside of the page. So when, when the book is open in front of you, the inside of the page is always the commentary Rashi, and the outside is always the commentary Tosfas. And again, we will, we will learn one, a few of the Rashis throughout this series to give us a, a taste of what they're there for and also to help us identify where they are. So just again, quickly, you got the page number, which is called the DAF. The Amur, you need to, not some, no, no serious investigation, but the Amur is, or if there's no dot, or if there's one dot, that means Amur means side A. And if there's two dots, it usually means um, it's Amur base. And that's a the common way of referencing to the Talmud is, hey, I'm learning DAF Lamed Dalet. We're going to be learning DAF Lamed Gimel, actually. But this is, I took a picture of DAF Lamed Dalet Amur Aleph. Okay, so that is just, and then once, while we're at it, I just wanted to give one more example of what a first page of a parak looks like. Um, here you have, this means when you see these words, Hadron Alecha El it's big letters in the middle. Um, I should really give a better example, but it's usually in the middle of a page. You'll just see those words. It means it's the end of previous chapter. And here we have, well, this, this Talmud doesn't, but a lot of the next ones, um, well, this, the Mishnah will start, and that means it's a new chapter starting. And, and here, if you just look here, the Gimel Mem means, or the end of those two dots, Gimel Mem means it's the end of the Mishnah, and we'll be starting the Gemara. Right? So I think we're good with that. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll just quickly... I'll give throughout the series, I'll just give quick references to them. Or when we're learning a Talmud, I'll reference back to it and just go through that, that basic skill again. And I just lost my page. Okay. 
Now we're going to go to the actual, our actual Mishnah. We're ready? So our Mishnah is, we're, we're going to be studying Perkamafkit, um, which is the, the Perek of the depositor. And we're going to hopefully cover what? We should, we'll, we'll cover the Mishnah today. And the next week we'll get into, into the Gemara of it. So I personally use uh, this website called the Merkava. And again, if encouraged, the best way of learning Talmud is to review it. You have, I'll, I'll put it into the chat for those that want to, I, I'm going to put it, let me just put that into the chat. Um, sorry. I'm just going to put that link in. It just, it's very, it's, it's a very helpful website if you want to get the experience of learning out of the Talmud and having that nice uh, translation on the bottom. So it color codes it for you. And then, I mean, there's different aspects, but you just click on a few words, it will break down the sentence for you. And then right there on bottom, you got the translation. So I, I put that in the chat. So, um, and again, reviewing it is always good. So, th so this Mishnah is going to be discussing a certain aspect of... <clears throat> of the responsibilities of the responsibilities that well not the responsibilities we this mission again assumes you know your responsibility as a watchman and once you know that the mission is going to deal with the new with a new situation and this is how it goes one who deposits by his friend and just my students asked me this, and it's 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 a, I, I thought it was nice. The Talmud and how and, and Jewish law many times uses chavero no matter who it's talking about. Because there's a nice lesson there. Just just let just just be just be loving. a <laughs> chavero, one who deposits by his friend. Behema o kalim, an animal or a vessel. Vinignivu. They were stolen. Osha Avdu, or they were lost. So you gave me a, a product, and we, you come back to me and you go, okay, time to return. And I tell you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Adam, it was stolen. Or um, I go back and just go back to that example in the Talmud. I go back to that place in the wall and I check for the money, the money's gone, it's lost. Now, this is where the rule, this, the Mishnah is dealing with primarily these four words. The watchman paid and he did not want to swear. So he was able to swear and say, so let's, let's just go back. We're talking about an unpaid, let's say we're talking about an unpaid watchman. And an unpaid watchman, what would be the rule if it was lost or stolen? Lost or stolen, unpaid watchman. He could swear that he wasn't. Say what? Did we have, did we have an answer there? <laughs> he swears and doesn't pay. Excellent. Thank you. He swears and he doesn't pay. What does he need to swear? He needs to swear that he wasn't negligent and that he actually, that that's actually what happened. Or he needs to swear that he, he's not keeping it in his backyard because he found out that it's a good object and he was looking for this object and Amazon just just uh, just ran out of uh, ran out of that product and he found it easier to keep it, pay you, 
right? So he needs to swear. And he comes to you and he says, I don't want to swear. I want to pay. Now, no problem. Torah lets you pay whenever you want to pay. There, there's, no, there's no debate. You want to pay, pay. No problem. You paid. I gave the depositor his money. Shaharei Amru. What's unique about the situation is we had a rule. Shomer Chinam Nishba unpaid watchman, could swear and go away and leave, meaning he leaves the responsibility. He leaves the financial transaction, the financial, um, the financial relationship that there is between the two, he walks away from. So the moment the unpaid watchman swears that he doesn't, that he wasn't negligent, that's it. But this unpaid watchman decided to take a different route. Instead of swearing, he decided, I am paying for your object. And that could be for multiple reasons. It could be because he's not 100% sure that he wasn't negligent. It could be just because back in the olden days when they would make you swear, it was a scary thing. They would take you to court and dress you. They would darken the room. They would turn on candles. They would open up the Torah ark. You would have to hold the Torah. The rabbis would wear their, uh, their, their talasim, their swalls over, their, their white. They would dress in white. It was a, a pretty scary situation, and they would warn you. So this guy decides, you know what, I'm paying. I don't, I don't want, it's not worth the hassle. I have, a, I have a family friend, which is, uh, thank, thank God, a successful businessman. And um, he has a policy to good or to bad, and this will, I'll leave this for the, for the businessmen to debate, but uh, he has a general policy that as long as the argument is worth less than a certain amount of money, he pays. Not worth it. I'm not going to court. I'm not debating you. Take your money and let's take your money. It's the last time we're talking, but take your money, right? So let's say this submission happens to him. I, I turn to this guy and I say, Shia, please watch my car. And I come back to him and I say, where's my car? And he goes, you know, just take your money and walk away, right? So this guy decided instead of swearing, instead of going to court, instead of, instead of having your name in the newspapers that you're in court and then somebody Googles your name and finds that there was a court case between you and somebody else and is, doesn't have the patience to read the whole court, Shomer, whatever, the guy decides he's swearing. He's paying. Now, what gets tricky is, not tricky. Nimtza Haganav. The thief is found. We found a Ganav. We found the person that stole the object. Now, what happens? What's the rule if somebody steals something how, and you find him? How much does he need to pay? He's got to pay double. He's got to pay Kofel. So here we have a situation. The depositor got his money back on my free will because I was able to swear and instead I gave him the money. But now we found, now we have somebody that's obligated to pay double the object. Mishalim, so the rule is if you found him, Mishalim Tashlumi Kofel, he has to pay the payment of double. Side rule, and again, this, this itself is its own topic, Tavach if when it was stolen, it was slaughtered or sold, so then the rule is mishalim tashlume arba v'chamisha. 
The one who stole it needs to pay a payment of four or five times. Uh, again, it's a. It's it, it seems again this 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 these words over here, are, have pages of Talmud written about it. Of why are we responsible? What's the reason behind it? But the general rule is, is if it was slaughtered or if it was sold. So somebody stole. Sorry, do we have a question there? Do we have a question? Yeah? Sorry. Um, if it was stolen or it was cooked, so then the, 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 the person who stole it needs to pay four or five. But again, just, just to generalize it without getting into the details of why, because that's not the track that we're studying. Um, so there's, there's a fee involved over here. There's extra payment that needs to be made. To who does he pay? He needs to pay the double. He needs to pay four or five. To who? Does he pay to the depositor because his object was stolen? Or does he pay to the watchman because the watchman already paid the depositor for his object? Who does he pay? He pays to who? Shapikadon, it's low that the depositor was by, by the watchman. And the reason for that is because as a watchman, I'm just using myself as an example, I paid you for your object already. So now the object become, becomes mine. That's what this mission is teaching us. The mission is teaching us, you didn't have to pay. You could have sworn, you could have left the person that deposited the object to you at a loss. You paid him for it. He sort of gave you the right, not sort of, he gave you the rights to that object and any benefit that might come from it later. And in this case, you hit gold. The object was found. So A, you get your object back. So you get the money of, of what you laid out back. But over here, you also ended up with the double. You ended up with any financial rights that might come from it. Okay, so I'm confused. So let me see if I understood what you just said. Thank you, yeah. Um, so you're saying that if you asked me to watch your um, rototiller, and you came to get it and I just said, hey, I don't want any issues. Let me just pay you for your rototiller, move on. We moved on. So now I have the rights to the rototiller and then the Atlanta police come and they knock at my door and they say, hey, we found this guy that was pawning off this rototiller that you were watching. So I get to keep the rototiller. Is that what you're saying? I get to keep it and get the double that the guy that stole it needs to pay. Got it. Okay. Now I understand. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And in a situation where you're paying four or five times, you pay that as well. Um, so that is the first part of the Mishnah. Okay. Second part. Um, and again, what, what, before we go that again, this is also key words for whenever learning Mishnah. And again, it's important for, for when you're learning the Mishnah, you could get away without using this word that I'm about to use. But when you're learning Talmud, you got to get this. Th this is an important word. When we have two cases in a Mishnah, 
And I'm going to focus on two because most Mishnas don't have three. There are a few, and I'll mention it later. We have a Resha, a Head, a Starter, and a Seifa, a End. So that whole, those few lines were the Resha of the Mishnah, the first case of the Mishnah. And the Talmud will use that later on and try saying, well, we could imply from the Resha of the Mishnah. So from the first case of the Mishnah, again, that's Resha, head. So that here we have one we have one case that's a Resha. And now we're about to go to the Seifa of the Mishnah, which Seifa is similar to the word Sof, the end, right? as Resha is similar to the word Rosh, head, beginning, start. And we have a Seifa, which is similar to the word Sof, which is end. Now, there is no clear, there is, again, there's no, when it comes to the Talmud, there is no clear, there isn't, I mean, there are, if you're using certain, if you're using the art scroll, if you're using Steinzeltz or you're using Sepharia, but in a regular Mishnah, you'll open up, it won't say clearly the Reisha or the Seifa. But we, uh, we use our, our reading skills and to say, well, this is one case and here we'll have a second case. Um, just to put it out there, not to focus on it that much, when there's three cases, you have the Reisha, the Mitzusa, the, the middle one, and uh, Seifa, which is the end, but again, not very common. And even when, even when it does happen, the Talmud usually doesn't reference to all three because it's so unique. Um, but Reisha and Seifa constantly comes up in the Talmud. If you pay attention to the Reisha to the head, it implies one thing. And uh, perhaps we'll get there by class number four because this, this Gemara, this section, this, this concept that we're going to discuss does touch on that. Case number two. So the safe of our Mishnah. What happens if he swore and he didn't want to pay? Right? So again, going back, an unpaid watchman. The object was stolen. I come to you and I say, where's the object? They say, I'm very sorry. It was lost. It was stolen. You come, okay, come with me to court. Swear for it. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I am going to swear for this. I am not giving you a penny. Sorry, I'm going to go with exactly what's expected. I'm going to swear. So here's a case of Nishpa. He swore velora to the Shalom. He doesn't want to pay. Nimtza Haganef. If the thief is stolen, if the thief is found, he pays double. Similar rule, Tabach Machar. If when it was stolen, it was slaughtered or sold, the one who stole it pays four or five times. Similar rule, to who does he pay? The to the owner, to the master of the depositor, the one who deposited it. Why? Simple. Because it's his object. Whose object was stolen? The one who deposited it. So A deposited something by the watchman. Um, the watchman has no rights to it. Yes, he got away from paying for it, but he never he never did anything to receive that object. Okay. Um, so here we have that Mishnah, and I would like to finish the end of class with just reading it, what I call a power review, um, because that's just the best way of learning Talmud is just reviewing it over and over. But before we go there, I just, I want to take just one aspect of this Mishnah and, and, and just to take it out of its, its, its for what it is, not that there's anything wrong with the Mishnah itself, but um, 
but I, I, I think this is one of the places in the Talmud that have a ver- could have a very strong um, implication on a lot of business dealings that we do today. And the reason for that is, is a lot of the discussions that there are in Talmud about buying and selling things are about actual objects. Over here, I, I, I'm seeing, and it's very clear, that there's a discussion about buying financial rights without the object being there. Without the object being an actual product that I'm giving over to you. So if you sell me your home, or somebody sell, I buy a home, and then it goes up in value, the home is my home. So it went up in value. What went up in value? My home went up in value. So you owned it a year ago, sounds fantastic and good for me. You know, I hope that you could congratulate me for, for, for buying it at the right time. And, and you know, we had a, a, a clear cut buy and sell thing. I buy a cow, for, somebody buys a cow from somebody and the cow has a baby. Yeah, I bought the cow and then it had a baby. You, you sold me a cow that could have babies. Over here is where we're dealing with something where at least from the Mishnah's perspective, you sold me the rights to make money off it, even though at no moment was the cow given over to me. So if I'm the watchman and somebody deposited something by me, when I paid for it, he didn't give me the actual cow in my hand. He gave me an idea of a cow, which at that point might have already been in, 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 in a meat soup or might have already been grilled or sold to some other farmer. And there's no way of me getting it back. And our Mishnah is telling us that what? That the financial rights and of this object, of this product belong to me because of a unofficial business transaction that we did. I didn't even tell you, the shomer, the watchman doesn't even say, I am buying the product from you. All he's saying is, take the money for your product. And this Mishnah is giving us a very clear, a well, clear direction that at least in some cases, that is a totally fine business deal because even though you're selling a, meaning not even though you could sell the financial rights of something, even though there isn't the actual product that is changing hands from mine to yours. Um, I just found that pretty, pretty interesting, and and how how our how our Mishnah, which was written Mishnah was written right two nineteen, the year two nineteen, will work out will help us. Uh, Give us some insight into 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 uh, doing business dealings in our days, where perhaps you're, you know where you're selling or you're giving over you're giving over rights and financial rights, right? It's it is nine o'clock, and um, I'm looking forward to start next class with the actual inside the Gemara. For those that want to stay on, no offense if you don't. I'm just going to do a quick power review. I'll just read the Mishnah, translate it twice, and then um, we'll continue, and then we'll see you next week. So I'm just going to go through that quickly. Again, we're doing tractate. I'm just going to go up to the top of the page. We're doing tractate Baba Metziah. Well, over here, because it's the top of the page is Elo Metziah. So, but we're not doing Elo Metziah. 
We're doing Lamed Gimel, Lamed Beis, Lamed Daf, Lamed Gimel, page Lamed Gimel, Lamed Beis, side number two. So Hamafke, it's a Chavere, one who deposited by his friend, Behemai Kalim, the animal or vessels. Benignivu, Osha Avdu, they were stolen or they were lost. Shilem Belei Ratzali Shava, he swore, he paid and he didn't want to swear. The watchman paid and he didn't want to swear. Sharei Amru, for behold, they said, Regarding a watchman, a unpaid watchman could swear and leave the financial responsibility. Nimsa Ganev, the thief, the thief is found. He pays the one who stole it pays the payment of double. If he slaughtered it or he sold it, he pays the payment of four or five. To who does he pay? To whom the deposit is by. So to the watchman. That is the ratio of the Mishnah, the beginning of the Mishnah. The safe of the Mishnah is, the end of the Mishnah is, what happens if the watchman swears and he doesn't want to pay? The one that stole it was found. He pays the payment of double. If he slaughtered it or he sold it, the person who stole it, sold it, stole, slaughtered or stole or, or sold it, Mishalim Tashlumi he would pay the payments of four or five. Mishalim, to whom does he pay? The Bala Pikadon to the owner, to the owner of the deposit, the one who deposited. I'm going to do that one more time. one who deposits by his friend. Behema, Kalim, animals or vessels. They were lost or they were stolen. He swore, he paid and he didn't want to, he paid and he didn't want to swear. So this, the watchman pays. Because behold, they said, an unpaid watchman could swear and leave the financial, leave without paying, meaning he leaves the financial responsibility. Nimsa, Ganev, the one that was stolen was found. Mishalim, Tashlume, Kaifo. He would pay, he needs to pay the payment of double. If he cooked it or he sold it, he pays the payment of four or five. Who does he pay? To who the deposit is by. That's the ratio of the Mishnah. The safe of the Mishnah, the end of the Mishnah is if he swears and he doesn't want to pay, if the one that was stolen is found, he pays the payment of double. If it was cooked or it was cooked, cooked, tavachumachar was cooked or it was sold, stolen, he would pay the payments of four or five. So four or five times, the mimishalim, to whom does he pay? To the master, to the owner of the deposit. So the so my students labeled it the depositor. That's their uh, right. So that here we have a Mishnah. So just a quick review of what we discussed today. We just, you know, we opened up the Mishnah and we just, you know, how, how to navigate at least the beginning of a conversation, how to navigate the page of the Talmud, the end of a chapter we had over here. And then we have a ratio of our Mishnah. We have a safe of the Mishnah. And the topic at hand is, could you buy? Well, the, ad, the topic is, what's the rule if somebody deposits a product, a product and it gets stolen and, who, and, and then it's found. So who gets the financial rights? Um, the out of box discussion that this Talmud leads that the Mishnah leads us into is could you buy financial rights without the object being at hand? All right. It was a real pleasure.
if you have any questions, I will be around for a few minutes and um, we'll continue next week. God willing. Thank you. You're very welcome. Rabbi Jacobson? Yes. Um, the concept of watchmen, is that just around this Mishnah or are we going to see it in other situations? Um, it's going to come up again in this series. Um, I think, yeah, it's going to come up primarily more, it's probably in class four, I hope. Um, but this, it's all over, Tom. It's all over this tractate. It comes up. It's a really, this idea of watchmen is extremely, it's an extremely, pop, extremely popular uh, discussion that exists throughout this, this um, section of Talmud. Um, we don't really need to know for the next three classes for sure, for the next two classes for sure, I, I would even say um, perhaps for this series, we might not even need to know the exact details of what they're responsible for and whatnot. But it was just, it's, it's just, it's just the underlining piece of information that from all the commentaries and from the actual page of Talmud, there's that expectation that it's somewhat, at least not, even if you don't, not, not to know it perfectly, but just to know that they exist. I hope that answers. All right. Uh, Rabbi Jacobson, quick question. So the three watchmen you listed were the unpaid watchman, paid watchman, and then renter? So... I listed the renter here. I'm just going to pull up that page. Um, I'm sharing screen, right? Um, so you have it here. I, I, I lay, oh, no, wrong, uh, wrong slide. Um, uh, so I labeled it the paid watchman. Well, the unpaid watchman, the paid watchman together with the renter, even though they, they're two different, they're coming from two different angles. I just put them together because they have similar, similar, similar rules in reality because they're both, similar that it's a that it's a that it's a uh, a mutual benefit so even like when you learn even throughout the talmud it does i did it also because the talmud does it like that the talmud and, says and, that it's four but then breaks down the rules into three and the third one oh shop sorry thank you Shoal is a borrower borrower thank you somebody borrows yeah Rabbi Jacobson, I have a question. Sure. Um, so in the case where if the watchman wants to pay, what if the depositor like doesn't want to take the money and would rather like keep on financial rights in case the item is found later? Fantastic question. Fantastic question. The, the, our, our, our series is not going to touch on that directly. But based on what hopefully will be class three or four, we'll see that there is that possibility. Um, that he could, he could, he could clearly. So th this, it's clear from the, from, from the, from what we'll continue seeing later, I'm giving you a sneak peek, that this is an assumption that, that, that he's willing to do it. But in a case where he states that he doesn't want to sell the rights, he could do that as well. Okay, thank you. You know, fantastic question. <laughs> I liked it. Good. Uh, yeah. All right. Anyone else? What is the value <clears throat> is the actually value of the value of the item, which was let's say uh, loaned or rented uh, to someone? Um, 
what if the value was actually greater? For example, a cow. Right. Female cow, but no one knew the cow was pregnant. The owner didn't know. The right. borrower, the borrower didn't know. The cow Great question. I think class three or four will touch on that. Okay. Now, yes. The cow was stolen. Yes. Um, the Ghanif sells the calf or has to someone else. Right. He he's caught by the police, said, here's the cow, just like it was. And then someone says, wait a minute, is that just like it was? It actually was a pregnant cow. Yep. It was a pregnant. I didn't know that. Nobody no one knew that. So who gets the benefit of it being pregnant? Does the Ghanif? Does the borrower? Does the does the owner? Very good question. Class four or three. You're, you're, you're beating me. You're beating the Talmud. What should I say? The Talmud gets into that. <laughs> that that's the beauty of the Talmud, that it's really a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work in progress. So when you open it up many times, you could even touch on those topics because it's, because it's such a, it, it's a discussion. So when you, leave the, when you leave the room open for discussions, you really many times end up. So, so the Talmud deals, deals precisely with such a case of, of, a, of a baby being born. Very good. So I, th I think we're going to touch on that, which really goes through this idea of unknown financial benefits that might occur. Not just unpredictable, but unknown or not really unknown that were there that you were just weren't aware about it on different than unpredictable or unknown. It was there. You just didn't know because, but, but so that will be, I believe, I believe the goal is to be for that for class three but we'll see if we, uh, that might end up being class four. All right. So can you repeat the concept that you were talking about where you could actually sell a financial interest without the object being present? Like a, a modern day one? Well, I can think, of, I think I can think of some modern day ones. I'm more interested in what were they thinking when that, if that is what, if I understood you correctly, yeah. and what was the case when they came up with that concept then? The, the, this case, our Mishnah. And that's what I found fantastic about this Mishnah is that our Mishnah doesn't say those words clearly. It doesn't say we are discussing financial rights, but when you read in the words, you see we're not discussing about selling an animal. We're discussing selling the rights of an animal. Okay. The financial rights without the cow existing because okay, it was stolen. It. Okay. And okay. at the moment, and interestingly, it's not even where you bought it on purpose. It's like right. where you sort of brought a product by mistake and then found out later that there was like, I don't know how that would work, but that there was like, this was really part of a, I don't know, like, a, like you bought, I, I can't, I mean, I can't even, I think there's that added twist to that. That is that like, that you didn't, even know, you weren't even planning to buy that, those rights. And that itself isn't enough. But I, I found that fantastic. When I realized that in the mission, I was like, wow. I was like telling my students, I, I, I took them on, I, I took a class on a journey of like, I just took them through like, a, a, you know, like the basic, I cannot like, you know, you bought a house and it went up in value, you bought a business, you bought a stock, and when it shot up, what does it have to do with our mission? And they just, and I'm like, well, here it is. So you're wondering why, why we're learning about cows and vessels. 
But let me tell you, that's it's a reflection of today's of today's economy. Well, sure, because stocks are the obvious in my mind, the modern example. Yep. And so this was actually them talking about specifics of what the commodities were in the day that the Mishnah was written down. Yes. yes. All right. I'm off. See you all next week, Arwan. And meanwhile, happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm Thank looking you. for the Thank continuation you. of happy Hanukkah. Course. Thank you. Night. Good night, good night. Yeah.